If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We're continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy! The problem, and it's pretty easy to illustrate the problem with this approach, is what if we we pick another scholar who says that, well, Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. It was a spiritual resurrection, and that's all. And it wasn't meant to be taken literally. Would we say, well, okay, that's acceptable. That's within the realm of inerrancy. It's just a matter of hermeneutic. It's just a matter of how you interpret the resurrection accounts. Do you think any of these scholars would, would tolerate that? I hope not. No, I, and I'm sure they wouldn't. There are certain things that they say, well, we have to hold on to that. But then the problem becomes, how do you decide which ones? How do you decide which parts of the Bible mean what they say and which ones don't? Now, certainly there are different genres in the Bible. There is poetry in the Psalms, for example, with wisdom literature in the Proverbs. There is prophetic material in Ezekiel. There's apocalyptic in Revelation. There's epistolary and didactic in Paul's letters and the other letters. But there's certainly historical narrative. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historical narrative. They won't won't suddenly jump and turn it to a different genre for one paragraph and then switch back. No, no. They're figures of speech, but figures of speech are called figures of speech for a reason. They're in speech. So they could record somebody saying something that's not literal. But he literally said that. Genesis 1 is certainly historical narrative. The the Hebrew grammar and syntax puts that beyond any kind of doubt. So to say, well, we we don't have to accept the historicity of the the resurrection of the saints in Matthew 27 because some evangelical scholars reject the historicity of other parts, I don't think that's a good argument. A third approach is, is to say that, well, here's a problem that if the saints rose when Jesus died, as Matthew 27 says, it's a problem because in the letters, Jesus is referred to as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And yet here we have these resuscitated bodies at the cross itself long before the resurrection. What do you think of that kind of argument? Well, I guess first we have to find what does first fruit actually mean? Well, they take it to mean first fruits like in, in growing crops. In the growing season, the first fruits that actually come out on the tree. Sacrifice involved first fruits, and was a, it was a sign of faith, actually, because in the ancient world, for survival, you depend on the 
food you grow. And if you give away the stuff that comes up first, you give it to God, what if no more comes up? So you're trusting that God will provide, and that's why you take the first of it. So first fruits of the resurrection mean like the first results, the first one who's actually resurrected. And they would say, this is a problem if the if these saints rose. Is that really a problem, though? Well, if they do that, are, are they then also going to say that Lazarus was never risen from the dead either? Well, that's an excellent point. If Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means nobody could have come back from the dead before him, what do we do with Lazarus? What do we do with the, the son of the widow of Nain? What do we do with the rising, raising from the dead that Elijah did and that Elisha did? Okay. Or, or, or the sick child, Tabitha. Yeah. Well, what do we do with those? What we do is we recognize the difference between resur- raising you. Yeah, and resurrection and resuscitation. Lazarus came back from the dead, but then he continued to live his life as, as a human and would die like everybody else. So these people were, were resuscitated. They were brought back from the dead, but they, they didn't receive resurrection bodies never to die again. Uh, Jesus is the first one like that. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, not of resuscitation. So that kind of objection is, is really careless, I would think. The other ones simply say, well, this doesn't violate the doctrine of inerrancy. They appeal to the widely used Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Article 13 of that document explicitly declares, we deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. And then they will say, if a scholar makes a proposal that a certain text of Scripture falls into a certain literary form or genre, understands the truth claims made by that genre, and believes and fully submits himself or herself to those truths, inerrancy is being upheld. So they just define inerrancy to mean not inerrant. Indeed. It kind of makes me think of Humpty Dumpty and Alice in Wonderland, where he says a word means whatever I say it means, no more and no less. What we're saying is it's, it's inerrant. If you deny that this is historical, it's okay as long as you just say it wasn't meant to be historical. But then again, we're back to the problem, what about then, say, the resurrection? What if the scholar would say, I believe the Bible's inerrant, Jesus never actually rose from the dead, but you see, the text wasn't didn't mean to say that he rose from the dead. This becomes then kind of a, a get-out-of-jail-free card where you can deny anything the Bible says and still claim you believe in inerrancy by simply saying that, well, but you see, I'm saying it's a different genre. And if that's the case, you may as well toss the Bible. You can never know if any of it is true anymore, or at least beyond just giving like nice lessons like Aesop's fables. Now, Blomberg continues... He says, for example, although virtually every scholar I've ever read agrees that Luke 16, 19 to 31, which is the, the parable about the rich man and Lazarus, agrees that Luke 16, 19 to 31 is a parable, I can count on students or lay people everywhere I teach asking me, what about the view that sees this as a real story about a beggar named Lazarus and a rich man? There's absolutely nothing in the text that calls this passage a parable or conclusively proves that it is one. But no one accuses me of violating inerrancy, and I explain why even conservative evangelical scholarship is virtually unanimous that it is a parable 
and that there are important theological lessons to be learned from the text, whether or not these two characters ever existed. Now, what do you think of that? Do you think that that's a fair parallel? Why or why not? Well, if something is a parable, isn't there usually some kind of indication in the text, like Jesus told them a parable? Yes, often there would be, and it would say Jesus spoke to them this parable, and then the parable followers, or he spoke to them in parables saying, but in this case, there isn't such a such an indicator. It simply starts out with him saying this story. And that's Blomberg's point here, that since there's nothing in the text that explicitly says it's a parable, if we take it as a parable, why is that not violating inerrancy? Just like if we say that in Matthew 27, the saints didn't really rise from the dead. It seems to me this is a completely unfounded and invalid comparison or analogy. Well, because in the case of the saints rising, it's clearly part of the narrative. It's not It's not the kind of situation where you aren't sure if he's telling a story about real people or fictional people. Yes, exactly. In Luke 16, 9 to 31, it says, Jesus told this. Inerrancy requires that Jesus really told that. That's the historical narrative. Whether the content of what he told is an actual story or a parable, we can debate that. But that doesn't violate inerrancy because the Bible doesn't assert that story. It simply asserts that Jesus told that story. That's the history. Now, if we were to say that Jesus didn't really tell the story, this is just some symbolic way of saying this is an important story, then it would parallel what Lacona is doing with the account of the saints rising. So this is completely an invalid parallel, completely invalid attempt to justify what Lacona is doing here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, he continues, If people are unpersuaded by the case for Matthew 27, 52 to 53 as an apocalyptic symbol, let them demonstrate exegetically why they would exclude this option and then let others judge as to who has made the better case. What do you think of that? Isn't that what we're doing? Well, we are, but I see a problem even in the way he puts this, because he says, if one persuaded by the case for Matthew 27, 52 to 52. Oh, let others judge. There's no real case. It's simply asserted. It says, well, pagans write this way. Since the Bible's not the word of pagans, no case has actually been made yet. There's been a bald assertion. But he wants to grab the initial presumption for that and put the burden of proof on those who who would oppose the idea that's an apocalyptic symbol as if we should just accept it now and anybody who wants to argue against it has to make the case against it. Oh, and let others judge. And who are those others? Probably the scholars. Let them demonstrate exegetically why we should exclude the option. Sorry, no. There is no case for taking historical narrative in the Bible and claiming it didn't really happen. You, you cannot simply make that assertion and then put, try to put the burden of proof on others to disprove it, which is what he's doing. Then he goes on to say this, those who bypass this process make it appear as if they know they cannot make a better case, but because they disapprove of the conclusion, they simply want to censor it. We so have, now they're starting to attack people's motives. No, they're saying that, that Lacona's case is, uh, is unassailable. We can't possibly disprove it. And we know we can't disprove it. 
and so we just want to censor it. Well, again, Lakota has not made a case. He's made assertions that what is clearly historical narrative is not historical narrative. Would they make the same kind of argument if we denied the historicity of the resurrection and said it was simply a symbolic teaching about a spiritual resurrection? Would they say, well, he's made the case, so anybody who wants to argue has to go against it? I don't think so. But in point of fact, we've made the case. Okay? Why this is not, not valid, but here's another one. If we look at the account, what happens right after these symbols are set to happen and described? What, what does the narrative continue with? What's the, what's the next thing that happens? Right after that part where it says that coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. It starts at verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What comes next? The centurion. What does it say? Oh, he said, read this. Oh, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Okay, do you see a, an exegetical problem here? Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.